This afternoon, we are going to learn a very uh, fascinating sikha, a talk by the Rebbe. In fact, it's, it's two pieces of two different sikhas, one from 1958, another from 1971, I believe. And um, the theme of these sikhas is about the, the importance, the specialty, the unique quality of the Jewish women in the general picture of Judaism. Uh, many times people approach Judaism with a certain misunderstanding, and that is that in Judaism, the men are front and center, and that's all that counts. The ladies just have to make good chicken soup, and that's it. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is absolutely not the Jewish, Jewish perspective. That's not the perspective of the Torah. Um, but there is a reason why there is this misunderstanding, because a lot of the stories are focused around men, uh, we talk mostly about the three patriarchs. Uh, when we talk about the leadership of the Jewish people, it's usually Moses and Aaron and then Joshua. And the Sanhedrin, the court of Jewish law, was all comprised of men. Typically in Jewish leadership, you find that it's male-dominated. So it becomes very confusing. What, what's going on over here? Is Judaism a male-dominated religion or not? And if it's not, so what, what's the place of the women? What is their unique, their unique place? So... Um, it's interesting to note that when the Rebbe became Rebbe, so 1950, 1951, within a year, I think it was in, within two years, the Rebbe set up an official organization within the Chabad movement called Neshei Chabad, the women of Chabad. Um, up until then, you know, in the, in the Chabad movement, there were several types of organizations. For example, the official yeshiva. Um, there was something called Tzi'irei Agudas Chabad, which meant like, you know, the youngsters of Chabad that were getting involved in, in Chabad activism. And here, almost immediately after becoming Rebbe, the Rebbe started an official branch of the Chabad movement called Neshei Chabad. In fact, th this was so important to the Rebbe that this was the first group of, uh, of members of Chabad that the Rebbe encouraged should gather together at a yearly convention. At this yearly convention, which always was in New York, in Brooklyn, or at least one of them. There, there was two conventions. One was in New York, and one uh, would happen in, different, in other places as the, as the movement uh, grew and it evolved. And uh, there were, there were uh, branches, and branches all over the world that would have, um, they would have conventions all over the world. But at least once a year, they would gather in New York and the Rebbe would have a special meeting with them. The Rebbe would speak with them. Um, in the early years, they would all do that in the Rebbe's room. They were able to fit. Um, you know, it was, it was several dozen women. Uh, but then afterwards, they would take the main synagogue of, of 770, the main synagogue of Chabad. They would empty it out. And it was set up officially for the Rebbe to come and to speak to the women. And this happened at least twice a year, the Rebbe would speak to the women. And um, there were many times throughout the year by official Hasidic gatherings, Farbrengans, where the Rebbe would dedicate at least one talk specifically to the women. In fact, uh, I remember hearing this, but I don't remember exactly when this happened, but I remember hearing a recording of a Farbrengan of the 10th of Shvat, which is the day, the anniversary of when the Rebbe became Rebbe. And the Rebbe said at one point, he said, it is my custom to dedicate a talk to the unique role of the women in Judaism. Not only that, if you go to... Um, if you go to uh, the Rebbe's, uh, the Rebbe's uh, uh, correspondence, if you read the Rebbe's correspondence, you'll see something very fascinating. That 
the Rebbe writes to men and women um, with, with uh, obviously, you know, to men separately and to women separately, but if a woman would write a letter to the Rebbe, the Rebbe would correspond with her. Uh, the Rebbe would, would give her advice. Uh, the Rebbe would validate her concerns. Uh, many of them would turn to the Rebbe with many different issues that were coming up in the family or in the community. And what we find very fascinating about these letters, in all of these letters, the Rebbe encouraged them to get involved in community activism, each one to, the, to their abilities and to their uh, capacity. But every one of them was expected to be a teacher, not necessarily officially paid to be a teacher, you didn't have to go into education officially, but was expected to be an example to others and to encourage others to grow in their Judaism as well. The reason why we're going to learn this this week is because this week is a very special parsha of the Torah. Parsha's B'Shalach, uh, we're continuing the story of Exodus, where the Jewish people leave Egypt miraculously. Um, it was overnight. It was uh, within hours after uh, the firstborn Egyptians were all killed by God. Pharaoh sent them out to the point that they didn't even have time to allow their dough to rise. And that's why we have the mitzvah of matzah. And when we celebrate Passover, it's a seven-day holiday. It starts off on the 15th of Nisan, which is the anniversary of when Pharaoh told them to leave. But it ends seven or eight days later. And the, the significance of that is because when the Jewish people were leaving Egypt, a few days later, Pharaoh regretted his decision. He probably didn't regret, regret it on his own. God caused him to regret it because God was not done uh, dealing with him. So he caused him to regret his decision. He convinced the Egyptians to gather an army and they chased down the Jews. They want to bring them back to Egypt to be their slaves. It's kind of like Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome. For about 10 months, they were beaten because they had the Jews there. So by the time the Egyptians let the Jews leave, the Jews were really in control of the Egyptians. Moses was in control of them. He was, he was turning their water into blood and bringing frogs all over. And all these different saris, all these problems. And now they finally got rid of the Jews. And now they want the Jews to come back. Whatever, go and understand that, uh, that mentality. They're chasing the Jewish people and they trap them by the Red Sea. The Jewish people are stuck. There's the sea in front of them, the Egyptians behind them. They don't know what to do. And Moses turns to God and says, now what? So God says, hey, I told you to continue traveling. You have to go to Sinai. And so there was one man, Nachshon ben Aminadav, he jumped into the water and he started walking. And then the sea split. That was the famous miracle of the splitting of the Red Sea. The Jewish people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. The Egyptians followed them into the sea. And as the Jews came out of the sea on the other side, the water drowned all the Egyptians. And at that point, the Jewish people were truly free of their Egyptian oppressors. Now they were, they were, they were truly uh, free people. The first thing they did when, uh, when they saw that the Egyptians were dead, they sang a song to God. It starts off with the famous words, Az Yashur Meisha of Yisrael. Then Moses and the Jewish people sang a song. And it's uh, quite a few verses. It's a long part of the, it, it, it takes almost an entire page of the Torah. And in fact, the, the, the setting, uh, the format of, of the song is different than the format of other parts of the Torah. So it's very distinct and unique. Uh, if you're rolling through the Torah, you're going to find the song Az Yashir very, very easily. It's the first time in the Torah that you have such a format. Uh, in fact, I think it's the only time in the Torah that you have such a unique format. Um, then after the men finished singing with Moses, right after that, the Torah tells us that Miriam, Moshe's sister, took a tambourine and she led the women in song. 
And the Torah says, and she started to sing, and it quotes the first verse of the song. But clearly she's saying the entire song, verbatim, that Moses sang with the Jewish, with the men, Miriam led the women in song, and they sang the same song. Notice that when the men sang the song, all it says is that they sang with their mouths. When Miriam led the women in song, the Torah tells us that she took a tambourine. And it's, and, and it's pretty implicit that all the Jewish women had tambourines. They had musical instruments. So the song that they sang was of far superior quality because it was also with you know, musical accompaniment. Where did they have these, uh, these tambourines from? Slaves don't uh, sing songs. They don't play music. What's the deal? And the Talmud tells us that from here we see that the Jewish women, even though they lived under such an oppressive regime like the Egyptians, even though they were all enslaved and they were going through a lot of trouble, but they knew and they believed with perfect faith that redemption was at hand. And they knew that at one point it would be appropriate to sing and to play music, and therefore they crafted the tambourines and other musical instruments in order that when the miracles happen, <clears throat> they should be ready to sing praises to God. Now, that's the, that's the story of the splitting of the sea. In addition to reading the Torah, the Torah portion every week in the synagogue, we also read something which is called the Haft Torah. The Torah we read from the actual scroll. But then after the, we complete the reading of the Torah, we read the Haft Torah, which is a selection from the prophets. We usually read it from a regular book. It's a selection of the prophets, and typically... The selection from the prophets is of a theme that is similar to the theme of the parsha. The, the selection of prophets that we read in connection with the parsha of Bishalach is from the book of Judges. And over there, there's a whole story about a, a, a female judge. There was a woman judge in the Jewish nation. Her name was Devorah. She was a judge and she was a prophetess. And Devorah, she, she taught the people, she led them in her unique way. And at one point, she was, uh, there was prophecy communicated to her from God that um, she should gather together. She, she should, um, there, was, there was a general, and his name was Barak, Barak ben Abinoam. And she, she, uh, they, were, they were meant to go and fight a battle against Aram which were uh, it was some, uh, a Gentile nation in the vicinity that was causing the Jewish people problems. Their, their general, their warrior, his name was Sisra, and um, they were terrorizing the Jews for many, many years. And Zvara told Barak that he should gather together an army and go out to war against Sisra, and he will be victorious. Barak told Devora, I will only go if you will accompany me into battle. So Devora says, fine. I'll go with you, but when victory happens, the glory will not be yours. The glory will be mine, right? It's going to be a woman at the head. He said, that's fine. I have no problem with that. You'll, you'll share the glory with me. And she went, and um, as they were getting ready for battle, Devorah tells Barak, now is the time. Strike them. God is on your side. And he did. And um, the entire nation of, of Aram was, was, was thrown into disarray. They all started running. Sisra started to flee. He ran, he ran into a tent, um, the tent of Yael, who was from the, 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 the family of, of Jethro. 
she brought him into the tent and she basically killed him. So the real heroes of this battle were Devorah and Yael. And after that, the prophet tells us that Devorah sang a song. And there's a whole long, elaborate, and very interesting song that she sang, a song of thanksgiving. And so the Haftorah that we read um, this Shabbat, after we read the story of the splitting of the sea and the song of the Jewish people saying, etc., is the song that Devorah sang several hundred years later. That's what we read for the Haftorah. In honor of that, in honor of the fact that in the Torah we read about a song, and in the Haftorah we read about a song, this Shabbat is called Shabbat Shira, the, 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 the Shabbos of song. See, most, most of the, the Sabbaths of the year don't have a specific name. You can call it the Sabbath of this parasha, that parasha, etc. But there are some specific Shabbats that have a, a, a unique title. For example, the, sh- the first Shabbos of the year between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is called Shabbat Shuvah. Because it's the Shabbat and the 10 days of repentance. So it's called the Shabbos of repentance. You have the Shabbos before, um, before Tisha B'Av, before the day that we commemorate the destruction of the temple. And so it's called Shabbat Chazon. It's the Shabbat of, of, of the vision. Um, the, the reason why it's called Chazon is because the Haftorah of that week, which speaks about a vision of Isaiah, which the vision of, of the destruction of the temple, so we call it, you know, the Shabbat of the vision. The Shabbos afterwards is called Shabbat Nachamu, the Shabbos of consolation, because it's the Shabbos after the destruction of the temple. And we also read a selection from the prophets that starts off with Nachamu. God is telling the prophet to console the people. The other Shabbos of the year that has, oh, then there's also the, the Shabbos before Pesach. is called Shabbat Hagadol, the big Shabbos, because a big miracle happened the Shabbos before the Jewish people left Egypt. I'm not going to get into the details of that. That's for a different different time. The only other Shabbos, I believe, that has a unique name is called Shabbat Shira, the Shabbos of Song. And that's going to be this week, the Shabbos of Bishalah. Now, the first thing I'd like to to do is go through the, the sources of where do we learn the idea of reading the Torah every week, its, uh, its relevance, and also why we read the Haftorah every week. So let's go through, we'll go through this a little bit uh, quickly, but it's important to have this context in order to appreciate the questions that the Rebbe is going to uh, present in the Sikha. So part one, uh, page, th- page two. Moses, our teacher, ordained that the Jews should read the Torah publicly on Shabbos and on Monday and Thursday mornings, so the people would never have three days pass without hearing the Torah. It's an interesting thing. God wanted, Moshe wanted that, that Torah should be so relevant in everyone's life. And even though everyone's not, not everyone is going to have a Torah in their home, but at least when they get together as a community to pray, they should hear the Torah at least once in three days. So Shabbos, Monday and Thursday, spaces it out in a way that, um, that, you're, that three days will not pass. Three days is like a, is like a, it's a very serious uh, time. Three days is a lot. So therefore, we want to uh, inject Torah into every three days or less. Quote from the Talmud, it was taught, and Moses led Israel onward from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. That's also from this week's parasha. They continued, they couldn't find any water. Those who interpret verses metaphorically said that water here is referring to the Torah. 
as it's stated in, in Isaiah metaphorically concerning those who desire wisdom, everyone who thirsts, come for water. The verse means that since the Jews traveled for three days without hearing any Torah, they became wary. And therefore the prophets among them arose and instituted for them that they should read from the Torah each Shabbat, and pause on Sunday and read again on Monday, pause on Tuesday and Wednesday, read again on Thursday, pause on Shabbat Eve, and so they would not tarry three days without hearing the Torah. So it's not just that Moses had this idea that it shouldn't go three days without hearing Torah. There is a source for it in a verse of the Torah, of this week's Torah portion. When the Jewish people went for three days without stopping to hear Torah from Moses, from God Almighty, they became wary, they started to kvetch, they started to get into trouble. That was actually the first time they started to complain after they were fully and finally free, and they're still complaining, we want to have water, and they found some water, and the water was very bitter, and they complained, and God made a miracle, and Moses threw a branch into the water, and it became sweet. So taking the metaphor of water, that it's a metaphor of Torah, here we see this idea that when you go three days without Torah, that's when things start to get a little catchy. So therefore you have to make sure to learn Torah. Best is every day and all day. But even if not, make sure that at least three times a week you have a specific time to learn Torah. Okay, let's go to source four. The reason we read the half Torah is explained in Tishbi, Ruth 289. He found a source which stated that the evil Antiochus, Antiochus, remember this guy from the Hanukkah story, the Syrian Greek king decreed that the Torah not be read in public. That was part of his way of, of crushing Jewish life. What did the Jews do? They read a segment of the prophets that was similar to the Torah portion of that Shabbat. That was the way of getting around it. Antiochus said, you can't read from the five books of Moses. He said, fine. No five books of Moses, but we're going to find something in the prophets that reminds us of the theme that we would have read this week in the five books of Moses. And they go with that. In our day, although the decree has been rescinded, the custom has been preserved. So essentially, the, the, the custom of reading the Haftorah every week, a selection from the prophets, is really a, an exile type of evolution. It didn't evolve from good times. It evolved from very bad times, actually. And that's a very important uh, detail to, to, to appreciate as we go further in the Rebbe's Sicha. So, in summation, this whole idea of reading the Torah every week was set up by Moses. Moses set up a schedule. We should finish the Torah once every year. That's what we do. That's our custom to finish it every year on Simchas Torah. Uh, there was an ancient custom to finish it once in three years. That's an entirely different situation. They would read only a third of the parasha every time. And so there was many more Haftorahs and a lot more going on. But the custom already for about 2,000 years is, exclu eh, 1,500 years, is exclusively the idea that we finish the entire Torah in one year. And we have a part of the Haftorah that is read together with the Torah portion, but that's something that came about 1,000 years after Moses, when the Jewish people were under Syrian Greek oppression in the time of Hanukkah, and they weren't able to read the Torah, they took selections of the prophets in order that they should remember the theme of the, of the Torah portion. And even when life got better, the miracle of Hanukkah happened, and there was no more Syrian Greek empire stopping them from learning Torah in public, they continued this custom of reading the half Torah. All right, so let's go to part two. Page number four. Here's the quote from this week's parasha. What is the theme of the parasha? Mainly the theme of the song that Moses sang with the Jewish people. 
Moses and the Israelites then sang this song to God. It went, I will sing to God for his great victory. Horse and rider he threw into the sea, etc., 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 the long and beautiful um, song of the sea. Then finally, about uh, 19 verses later, in verse 20, it goes like this. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister. She was also Moses' sister. Why is she called Aaron's sister? So Miriam, the prophetess. When did she say prophecy? Miriam said prophecy when she was five years old, before the birth of Moses. Um, she was five years old. She had only one brother, Aaron, who was two years younger than her. He was three. And she told, and that was the time when Pharaoh made the decree that all Jewish boys are going to be thrown, all newborn Jewish boys are going to be thrown into the Nile River. Amram was their father. He was the leader of the Jewish people at the time. He basically said, it's not worth it having children if they're, all, they're going to be killed. And he divorced his wife. And guess what? All the Jewish people divorced their wives following Amram's footsteps. And Miriam came to her father and said, you're worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh is stopping the boys from living, but you are stopping none, none of the children are going to be born, male and female. In addition, Pharaoh is an evil man. So his wishes clearly will not necessarily be uh, successful. But you are a righteous man. And if you set the standard of divorce and separation and not having children, so for sure everyone is going to do it, and that's going to have eternal relevance in the Jewish nation. We're not going to have a nation. And then she concluded and said, if you get back with mom and you continue having children, the next child to be born will be the Redeemer. And based on this five-year-old girl's prophecy, Amram remarried, causing all the Jewish people to get back together with their, with their wives. And he had a child, and that was, that was Moses. So here, at the height of Moshe's career, he's 80 years old, he just, he's leading the Jewish people out of Egypt. His, his uh, approval ratings are going through the roof. I don't think he ever had such good approval ratings, by the way. Right afterwards, there started to be kvetches and stuff. But the moment that they crossed the sea, they said, wow, Moses did 10 plays and he let us out and he split the sea. This guy is the best. So he's at the height of his career. And after he finishes leading the Jewish people in song, the Torah tells us, and here comes Miriam. And what's Miriam's uniqueness? The fact that she was a prophetess when she was only Aaron's sister. Before Moshe was born, she was already leading the way to redemption. She was the one paving the way for redemption by saying the prophecy that when the Jewish people are going to have faith in God and continue having children, the Redeemer will be born. And that's ultimately what happened. What did she do, this prophetess? She took the drum in her hand and all the women followed her with drums and dancing. Miriam led them in the response, sing to God for his great victory, horse and rider he threw in the sea, etc., etc. The Torah does not you know, recount it, but it's uh, basically implying that the exact same words that Moshe said Miriam said with the women. What's the half Torah that we read? So we mentioned it earlier, but source number six, Deborah saying, as well as Barak, son of Abinoam, on that day saying, when vengeances are inflicted upon Israel and the people dedicates itself to God, blessed the Lord, etc., etc., a long and beautiful uh, song to God for the great miracles of that victory that happened then, several hundred years after the exodus from Egypt. Now here comes the question that the Rebbe is going to address. In the prophets, in the book of Samuel, there's another very important uh, Jewish uh, leader who composes a song. He sings a song to God, and that is none other than David.
King David composed many songs to God, but there is one specific one that is called David's Song, and it's recorded in the Prophets. Samuel 2, 1, source number 7, David spoke to God the words of this song. On the day God delivered him from the, from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and there's a long and beautiful song composed by David. Now here comes the question. With all due respect to Deborah, King David is a real deal. I mean, King David is, is a serious situation. So why was it chosen that, why was it determined that the Haftorah to accompany the Parsha of the week that discusses the song of Moses and the song of Miriam, it's a song that was sung, composed mainly by a woman, Devorah, and not the song of David. Because if, if you look at the actual parasha, what do you see? You see Moses sang with the men, and it says the entire song. And then it says Miriam sang with the women. So the half Torah, which should be a reflection of the theme of the parasha, should probably focus on the song of Moses. So just like Moses was one to lead the men in this song, talk about a song that was composed by a man, King David. But no, the fact that the half Torah, it was determined that we're going to sing the song of Devorah, it seems... Now, what are we making a big deal out of? What are we saying is the theme of the parsha, not Moshe's song, Miriam's song. Why is that? So let's read it in the Rebbe's, in the Rebbe's words. Page number five. So this is from 1958. So the Rebbe starts off and he says he's quoting a talk from his father-in-law, whose yard was yesterday on the 10th of Shvat. So 20 years ago. On the last day of Passover in 1938, my father-in-law, the Rebbe, spoke about this week's Haftarah. He related that his great-grandfather, the Tzemach Tzedek, shared that his own grandfather, the Alter Rebbe, had once asked, had once asked, why is the song of Devorah, the prophetess, the chosen Haftarah for this week? <laughs> I'm sorry. Instead of the song of David, which is in fact the Haftorah of the seventh day of Passover, when the exact same Torah portion is read. On the seventh day of Passover is the anniversary of the splitting of the Red Sea. And when we get together in the shul then, we read this chapter from the Torah, the story of the splitting of the Red Sea and the Song of Moses. And the Haftorah that we read on the seventh day of Passover is the selection from for the, the, the song of King David. So the Alter Rebbe is asking, why don't we also read that this week's parasha, Bashalach? This week's, this week's parasha contains a song of men and women respectively. First, Moses and all the men. Sorry, just a moment here. First, let me just find out. Okay, first Moses and all the men sang praise to God, and then Miriam and the women took out musical instruments and sang praise to God as well. So, why was the song of a woman, the song of Devorah, chosen to be the Haftorah? The Alter Rebbe proceeded to share a long story, which is published in the above mentioned talk. He concluded, to saying a long story, he concluded that although both the men and women sang praise to God when they left Egypt and crossed the sea. The women did so with music and dancing. They sang their praise in a much more joyous way. 
Therefore, the song of Devorah, a woman, was chosen to be the Haftorah. Okay. In other words, the reason why we are doing a special focus on the fact that Miriam sang is because she did so with musical instruments. And because there was that unique and special involvement in the mitzvah, a unique involvement in singing praise to God, therefore, their song is what gets the most attention. How so? By the fact that the Haftorah is specifically the song of the women. But now a new question arises. Why indeed weren't the men as joyous as the women? The answer is quite simple. When we receive something without investing effort, it is impossible to experience the same level of joy and gratification as an individual who worked long and hard to attain the same exact thing. Our sages say, Reward comes according to the anguish. The joy and satisfaction will always reflect the effort and toil that had been invested. When the Israelites left Egypt and sang praise to God for their salvation, the men could not have possibly felt the same sense of joy that Miriam and the women felt at that moment. Why? The worst of the Egyptian persecution began during Miriam's childhood. The greatest atrocity was the drowning the newborn boys in the, in the Nile. All of their suffering, slaving away in inhuman conditions, paled in comparison to the terrible decree of the killing of the newborns. Our sages also related that this came after a different atrocity occurred, or before actually a different atrocity occurred. Pharaoh would bathe in the blood of Jewish children. This is experienced by mothers more than fathers. When a little baby is taken away, when such an atrocity occurs, the mother is much more affected. Why? It's very simple. The father obviously is very important when it comes to the birth of a child. But who is the one that carried the child for nine months? Who's the one that goes through the pain of childbirth? And who's the one that nurses the child? That's the mother. And so because the mother invested day in and day out, she invested her very body into the birth of the child. Therefore, the loss of the child is felt much more deeply by the mother than by the father. Therefore, when they finally escaped Pharaoh and his evil decrees, the joy of the women was far greater. So with this, the Rebbe basically sets, gives a certain perspective here. When you're talking about one of the most important historical events in, in our peoplehood, in the evolution of our becoming a nation, the splitting of the sea when finally the Egyptians are gone, who is getting the most attention? The ones who gave the song the most attention. The ones who invested the most in the song, and that was the women. They had musical instruments. Why is it that they had the intuition to bring those musical instruments with them? And why were they the ones that specifically wanted those instruments to accompany their song? Because the pain of exile was felt mostly by them than by the men. So here we see that when it comes to the foundation of our people, the, the women are the ones that are constantly leading the way and the ones that are the most, ha, ha, had invested the most quality in ensuring that our people 
exist. Miriam was the one that encouraged her parents to remarry and have children. And it was only because of her that the Redeemer was born. And even afterwards, the fact that the women were willing to become pregnant and have children, despite the fact that the Egyptians were, were hunting out these kids and they were killing them, that itself shows on a very, very great level of self-sacrifice that the women had and their dedication to ensure that when the time comes for redemption, there should be a Jewish nation. Without the Jewish mother, there's no Jewish people. And therefore, they were the ones that were front and center when it came to the, the song. Now, in this next, uh, in this next uh, part, which is a, a, a sicha from the Rebbe from 1931, from the 10th of Shvat, I'm, I'm sorry, 1971, uh, 5731, which in the, in the secular date is 1971. The question the Rebbe asks is, there are, there are other times in the Torah where we read about a song, and yet this week is the only week that the Shabbat is called Shabbat Shira, the Shabbos of the song. Why is that? So let's go to part three, page number seven. This Shabbat is called Shabbat Shira, the Shabbat of song, because our Torah portion speaks of a song, the song of Moses and the people of Israel. In addition, the Haftarah is also called, is also a song, the song of Devorah. However, there are other Torah portions with songs. Why are those weeks not called Shabbat Shira? For example, Parashas Chukas contains a short song by the people of Israel, Rise, O Well, Respond to this song, as explained in Rashi's commentary. You know, you know the story of this song? I'll tell you something pretty amazing. The Jewish people were traveling, they were getting closer to the land of Israel. And they had enemies. And at one point, the Emirate nation decided they are going to ambush the Jewish people. There was a certain uh, ravine, you know, a certain area that they had to, they had to travel through, that on, on either side there were these two massive cliffs. And the cliffs, they, they, were, they, they were shaped very interestingly. On one side, there was like rocks protruding. And on the other side, there was like these clefts in the, in, the, in the rocks. And so it was as if someone had taken a mountain and split it apart. So it was like two puzzle pieces that could come together. So you have these like two mountains, that, the, the mountain that had split apart. <clears throat> and the Amorites decided that they're going to hide out in like little caves in the, in the cliffs. And as the Jewish people traveled, you know, they travel into that area, they're going to ambush them. They're going to kill them all out. Fine. Great idea, right? Well, they didn't realize that they were up against God himself. As the Jewish people got closer, God took the mountain, or these two separate mountains, and brought them together. He basically put the two puzzle pieces together. So what happened? Anyone that was stuck, that's the ultimate being stuck between a rock and a hard spot. I mean, they were basically crushed in, the, in this mountain. And the Jewish people just walked by as if nothing happened. They didn't even notice. They didn't even notice what happened because before they came, God crushed all of their enemies in this mountain. So the Jewish people continued to go without knowing anything. Now God says, one second, I did a miracle for them. There's no point in a miracle if they don't know about it. They should know about the good that I did for them. In general, this is a, this is a lesson in life. You do something good for someone, it's always good for them to know what you did in order that they should appreciate it. It fosters goodwill. So God wants to foster goodwill with the people, you know. Every, every extra miracle he does for them, they should know about it. So he says, so what am I going to do? How am I going to tell them that it happened? 
So this, this sounds a bit gory, but it was actually very exciting for the Jews when, when they realized what it really meant. The Jewish people, how did they have water in the desert? They had a big stone that was called the Well of Miriam. It was this water would flow from a stone miraculously. And it would basically run around the entire camp like a stream, like a little lake, a river that was running around the camp. So as they were going through that area, the next place where they camped out, they were very, very close to that area. God arranged that all of the limbs and the blood from, from the Amorites that were crushed in the mountains should wash into this river, into this miraculous river. So instead of a river of fresh water, they had a river of blood and limbs and stuff like that. And when they saw that, they realized what had happened. They realized the danger that they were in and how God had saved them from this danger. At that point, the Jewish people sang a song. It's a very short song, but it's there at the end of the book of Numbers. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's very cryptic as well. So it's a song that encompasses several things. It's a song of praise, thanking God for the miracle of the fact that the Amorites were destroyed and the neighbors, their enemies did not have a chance to attack them. And also it's a song of praise, thanking God for the well that had served them so much for those 40 years. Be it as it may, in the summertime, there is a parasha in the Torah where we read about a song. And yet, that's not called the Shabbos of song. However, this is not such a strong question. After all, the song is only a short segment of the Torah portion, which contains a wealth of topics. So, all right, we don't have a big question with that. The question is from Parsha's Ha'azinu, the second to last Parsha of the entire Torah, called Ha'azinu, it contains a song as well. This song, in fact, covers more of the Torah portion than the song of Moses in this week's Torah portion. The Song of Moses in this week's Torah portion is not even 10% of the verses, maybe even less. I think it's about 5% of the verses in this week's portion. In Parsha Ta'azinu, it's about 80% of the Parsha. 80% of the Parsha is the Song of Ha'azinu. So wouldn't it make more sense for that Parsha, for that Shabbos to be called Shabbat Shira, the, the Shabbos of the Song? <clears throat> This song, in fact, yeah, okay, there, regarding the Torah as well. On the week of Parshas Ha'azinu, we read the song of David. Seemingly, the name Shabbat Shirah should be given to Parshas Ha'azinu, and perhaps to this week's portion as an addition. But for some reason, this week is called Shabbat Shirah, and the other is not. So now, the Rebbe continues. One explanation, the previous Rebbe gave a well-known talk, uh, about this week's Haftorah, the, basically the talk that was quoted in the, in the other talk. He noted that it was not the song of a man like the song of David in the, in the Haftorah of Azino, rather it was the song of a woman, the song of Devorah in commemoration of the song of Miriam and all the women of the Parsha for the reasons he explained there. This is associated with the teachings of our sages. So over there he explained, the reason is because when the women came out of Egypt, they had experienced the, tor the, the torment and, and the oppression of Egypt in a much more deeper way, and therefore their song, their rejoicing, was much greater than that of the men. But here the Rebbe elaborates on this idea. This is associated with the teachings of our sages. In the merit of righteous women of that generation, Israel was redeemed from Egypt. The Haftorah, which is associated with a concept of exile, remember, where did the Haftorah come from? The Haftorah came from the times when Antiochus did not allow the Jewish people to read the Torah in public. And that's where the whole idea of Haftorah was born. So since women were very integral in ensuring that the Jewish people should be redeemed from Egypt, 
and the, the exile and redemption of Egypt are the prototype of all future exiles and redemption, and especially of the final redemption. So therefore, this idea that the women were very involved in the redemption, the women were very involved in the celebration of the redemption, is reflected specifically in a haftorah. Haftorah, which is something that comes from exile. It therefore focuses on the key of our redemption, the influence of the Jewish women. As the Medrash says, the future redemption will be in the merit of the Jewish women as well. Therefore, we call this week Shabbat Shira, specifically in the week where we read a woman's song, both in the parasha, the song of Miriam, and also in the Haftorah, the song of Devor. Torah is all about action. When we study the Torah, in the Torah about the importance of the song of Miriam and the song of Devorah, it is a message that we should once again highlight the merit and the responsibility which is placed on the righteous women of the generation. And when they show true leadership, all other women and girls follow along just as they followed Miriam, and they will all sing together, sing to God for his great victory. And their own daily conduct and the conduct of their household as well will reflect the will of God, as in the words of the song, Ki God is exalted beyond all exalted. There is no reason to fear anything because God transcends all obstacles. And this will bring the redemption from the, from the exile into reality. In general, when the, the whole idea of, of women being involved in community activism and community leadership um, in fact, already in the 1950s, when the Rebbe was sending out shluchim, the Rebbe was sending out emissaries to open up Chabad houses, so the story is told about Rabbi Feller. And his wife, Rabbi Feller was, was sent to Minnesota to open up a, a, a branch of Chabad there. And um, he was told different things that he should do. He should set up classes, and he should gather people together, etc. And at one point, he asked the Rebbe's secretary, who was the Rebbe's chief of staff, Rabbi Chadakov, he asked him, what is my wife going to do? You have to realize in those days, it, wasn't, it was very common you had a rabbi, and his wife did other things. Either she had a career, or she was busy teaching, or, uh, or she was just a stay-at-home mom. That's also fine. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no shame in that either. Um, and and the, the rabbi was, was involved in the community. So uh, rabbi, rabbi Feller asked Rabbi Chalakov, what is my wife going to do in Minnesota? Rabbi Chalakov said, wait here. And he went to the rabbi's room, and he asked the question. When he came back, he said, your wife will do exactly what you do. You make classes for men, she'll make classes for the women. You are going to arrange events and you are going to include people in different uh, Jewish uh, experiences. Your wife should do the same. The Rebbe set the standard that when a Chabad couple goes out on Shlifus as his emissaries, they are equal partners in this endeavor. Why? Because many times, and most of the time, it's specifically the influence of the women that make it all happen. And, uh, and we learn this idea, this standard, dates all the way back to the beginning of our peoplehood. That at the most important juncture of our evolution as a nation, at, after the splitting of the sea, when the Jewish people were just starting to absorb the fact that they are free, the women were the ones to understand it most, to understand it best, and to express it in the best possible way. And just like this is what happened then, the first exile and the redemption from the first exile, the same thing is going to happen today, and that's one of the reasons the Rebbe explained, one of the reasons why there is an extra emphasis on the role of the women of Judaism, specifically 
today, specifically in the modern era, is because we're getting closer and closer to redemption. Rebbe even identified the fact that in, in the secular world, there's this idea of women becoming leaders and taking leadership positions, etc. Says this is all part of, uh, you know, the, an echo of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an era of redemption, which then we're going to see the very unique and superior quality of the women, um, and we have to make sure that it's channeled in the proper way and in the most powerful way. And with that, we will merit the coming of Mashiach very soon. Any questions, comments, discussions? The floor is open. Rochelle, you raised your hand. The difference between, like on the handout, it always says Rebbe's teaching. What's the difference between teaching and that? sense of the word and sikhus and say shiur? Good question, actually. Uh, sikha literally means a talk. So we, we typically refer to the Rebbe's teachings as sikhas because that's how the Rebbe taught it to us. He, he taught it in a talk. Um, so, you know, many times, the reason why they chose teachings in the, in the, in the title instead of talk is because it's not a very common uh, expression, uh, for, you know, a taste of the Rebbe's talks. So you just think the word teaching because the Rebbe's talks are also teachings as well. Uh, shiur, shiur is typically um, a class. Um, so a shiur, you know, like, like what's happening now is a shiur, having a shiur on Zoom. Um, and it's interesting that when the Rebbe would speak, it was not called a shiur. It wasn't called an official that most... Many, many Torah teachers, whenever they, whenever they speak to their students, it's usually called a shir. So you go into any yeshiva, any uh, Talmudic academy, whenever the head of the academy or any of the teachers uh, give a class, it's called a shir. Um, and so you can have some guy in a, in a high school with 13-year-olds, and he's, he's talking, and that's a shir. And you can have one of the greatest rabbis in Israel talking to a, a group of 1,000 students in his yeshiva, and that's also called a shir. Uh, but typically by the Rebbe, the way he would communicate Torah was in a different type of context. It was a different setting. Very rarely did the Rebbe ever come out and it's like, you know, he's officially teaching something now. It was usually in the context or in the, in the setting of a farbrengen. Farbrengen, which means a Hasidic gathering. There's, there's some wine and there's cake and cookies and there is, it's interspersed with song. So it's more of a different type of experience. Uh, in one farbrengen, the Rebbe, usually by a shiur, by a class, it's one very specific theme. So a, a, a rabbi would say, I'm going to be talking about this page in the Talmud. And everyone knows to prepare that page in the Talmud, and they're going to you know, focus on that, and he's going to explain it. Or it could be a shear on a very specific topic. It's before Passover, he's going to talk about the laws of Passover. When it came to a farbrengen, you never, you never knew what the rabbi was going to speak about. The rabbi could, could talk about anything. The rabbi could talk about a very deep concept in the Talmud, a very deep concept in Hasidic philosophy. The Rebbe could, 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 choose to speak, could choose to start a new initiative. You had, you had no idea what was going to happen by this Farbregen. Interestingly enough, every Shabbos, every Shabbos, in addition to the fact that it was very, you never knew exactly what the Rebbe would talk about. Uh, you knew that the Rebbe would probably focus on the parish of the week, but there was so much in the parish of the week that you could do. Um, in, in this program, we had learned uh, a sikha that was, that was focused on Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, the interpretation on the Torah. 
From 1965, after his mother's passing in 1964, the Rebbe started a custom to teach one Rashi in the Parsha every week by this Fabregno. And uh, as the Rebbe started to do so, there was some momentum, and people asked the Rebbe if he could share with the crowd before the Fabrengan which Rashi he would be talking about, so that they could prepare it. They could read it beforehand and look at all of the different uh, um, interpretations that were available. And then, as they're listening to the Rebbe, they're familiar with the topic. And the Rebbe liked the idea. So whenever there was a Fabrengan scheduled for Shabbos afternoon, Shabbos morning, when the Rebbe would come to Shul, he would tell a certain person, uh, which Rashi it is, and there would be an official announcement. There was an official announcement. The Rebbe is going to talk about this Rashi. So that was the, uh, basically the only thing that you knew the Rebbe was going to talk beforehand. Everything else, you had no idea what the Rebbe was going to say. So I would say that the, the distinction between a Shear and a Sicha or a Fabrengan is a Shear is on a very specific topic and it could be taught by even a very great sage. It's called a Shear. When it came to the Fabrengan, the Rebbe's Fabrengan, you knew that it was, it was coming from an entirely different, a different world, a different reality. And uh, you had no idea what the Rebbe would talk about. And whenever the Rebbe spoke, it was always an experience. It was always uplifting and inspiring. And, uh, and that's what we read. Uh, that's what we read every week. That's what we, we take a selection from these Fabrengans. Thank you. You're welcome. So along, along these same lines that uh, Rochelle just brought up, Tell us what a mimer is. A mimer? Oh, okay, very good. A mimer is, uh, okay, so a sicha, a talk, could be about any topic. It could be about the Talmud, it could be about anything. A mimer is very specifically an original Hasidic discourse, teaching novel ideas of Hasidic philosophy. Now, it could be about a lot of different things within Hasidic philosophy, but it is specifically in the, and so, so that, a Bimer is essentially on that theme, the Hasidic philosophy. However, the setting of the Bimer, uh, traditionally by Hasidim, when the Rebbe would say, and this was something that already started by the Baal Shem Tov, uh, by the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, when he would say a Bimer, the setting, it, it, everyone felt that as the Rebbe says this Bimer, he is teaching new words of Torah. Now, original words of Torah that is a setting that reminds us of the first time that the Jewish people heard the Torah, which was at Sinai. And so it was like, it was like a, a, new, a new experience of Sinai. And what's interesting is, when the Rebbe would say a mimer, there was, typically they would sing a song to prepare for it. During that time, you would see the Rebbe would become very, very serious. In fact, the Rebbe traditionally would take a handkerchief. He had a handkerchief in his pocket. He would take out the handkerchief and wrap his fingers around this handkerchief. He would wrap the handkerchief around his fingers. And the idea was that when the Rebbe was teaching Chassidus in the, in the, in the context of the setting of a mimer, um, you know, he, he's, he's on a very, very different type of level and he must hold on to something physical. He has to hold on to physicality to keep himself anchored. And when the Rebbe would say the mimer, he would say it in a, in a tone, a very different type of tune than he would typically speak. Also, when the Rebbe would say a mimer, everyone in the room would rise. Whereas throughout the Fabrengan, many of the older people or people were able to sit, but the yeshiva students never sat. But, uh, you know, people that were older and part of the community would sit by the Fabrengan on benches. Um, but when the Rebbe would get ready to, to, to start a mimer, everyone would rise. The entire place would, would stand up. In fact, the 10th of Shvat, 1951, I mean, for the entire year, the, what were the Chassidim asking the Rebbe to do? 
say a mimer. He was teaching a lot of Torah. He was teaching very novel ideas. He was leading the, the community. You know, he was doing everything he had to do, basically. But they were, they were desperate to hear a mimer from him. Because if he says a mimer, that means he's acknowledging this is my role. And so by that Fabrengan, um, at one point, one of the older Hasidim, he was, I think in his late 60s, Rabbi Nemtsov, he stood up and he said, the talks are great, but we want to hear a mimer. He said this straight up. And um, about a minute later, the Rebbe you know, opened up, uh, there was a little pamphlet of a mimer that his father-in-law had published. And the Rebbe starts off and he says, you know, in the mimer that my father-in-law published for the day of his passing, and then the, you could hear in the recording, there's like a pause. And then the Rebbe starts, he says, Bo, he says it in that tune. You can hear in the recording, the entire place gets all like, there's a commotion. Why is there a commotion? Because everyone's jumping to their feet. They weren't expecting it. They were totally not expecting it. But when they heard the Rebbe saying in that tune, which was reminiscent of the way his father-in-law said it, the, the, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe said in that tune, when he started to say it in that tune, that's when everyone just like was jolted into like this shock. And they all just jumped up and then they listened to the mimer. And when the Rebbe finished, this elderly chassid, he jumped onto a table and he said the blessing of Sheikh Yanu. It was, it was a, like, it was a really a, a very powerful moment. That was like the, the beginning of a new era. Um, and after that, the Rebbe continued to say Maimarim fairly regularly. And typically they were, it was prefaced by a song. And then the Rebbe would say the Maimar and afterwards the Fabrenga would continue. On very seldom occasions, there were times that the Rebbe only said a Maimar. So now you have a Fabrengan, a Sicha, and a Maimar. These are the, the different ways how the Rebbe would communicate Torah in public. Yes, Rashad. Thank you. And the women could attend the Fabrengan. Where would they be? They were in the, in the women's section. They were in the, there was a women's section of the shul, and the women were there. And it's interesting, the Rebbe at times would turn towards the women's section and, and say l'chaim to them. Okay. It was an interesting thing. The Rebbe would, sometimes the, the people were able to come up to the Rebbe and speak to him during the Fabrengan. The Rebbe says, I see your wife is in the women's section. How the Rebbe saw, I don't know. But the Rebbe noticed all the men that were there and all the women that were in the women's section. He was also able to see through the, it was, it was a glass, you know, but they were there, it was on an elevated platform. Um, and they were able to see, you know, the Rebbe was able to see who was there. And the Rebbe acknowledged the fact that they were present. Is that same area used today as a shul? Sure, sure. If you ever go to New York, one of the places to visit is the address is 770 Eastern Parkway, Brooklyn, New York. I will. If you're, if you're in Manhattan, take the three train to Kingston Avenue. You'll be in the right place. If you go to New York, you let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll lead you to the right places. Ask Sam. He knows how to bump into the right places always. Yep. Okay. Uh, Rabbi Levy, this is Morachaya. Can you hear me? <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. Okay. Uh, let's go back to the song of uh, Miriam. Yeah. What about Kol Isha? Very good question. Um, it is discussed in the, in the different commentaries. Uh, one of the that's one of the reasons why the men and women sang separately. The men sang on their own, and then the women sang. Okay, can, can, I mean, can you explain what she's talking about? I mean, right, I, I was going to say. Maybe we're not, maybe we're not all familiar. About... Right, right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not doing that. Um, in, in, in the laws of, of, um, of, of modesty, the laws of modesty, so um, in Jewish law, 
the, the sound of a woman singing, it's inappropriate for a man to listen to a woman sing if it's not his mother, wife, or daughter. And therefore, we do not have, uh, you know, female cantors, and we don't, we don't listen to, to, to women singers, etc. Um, women could sing to women. There's no problem with that. Uh, but men should not, be li- should not be listening to a, wo- a woman sing. And so Clara is asking if, uh, if you know, the, the women were singing, so what happened to Koli Shah at that point? So there's different ways of, of explaining what happened there. Either uh, they were, you know, the, the, the men did not hear the women sing. Um, I did once see a commentary that explained that the Jewish people at that point, I mean, one of the, the, the basic reason why uh, listening to a woman sing um, is, is a woman that's not, that you're not married to, or it's not your mother or your daughter, is because of the type of distractions that it would cause to the man. Uh, but the Jewish people at that point, after seeing such divine revelation of the splitting of the sea, they were on a level where they couldn't be distracted. It was impossible. And therefore, it was okay that the women were singing at that point, and even if the men were hearing. That's one of the interpretations that are brought. Uh, but typically, it's understood that the men were in one place and they were singing their song, and afterwards, the women were in their place and they were singing their song. Um, and you notice that there is this, 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 you know, they sang separately. They didn't sing together in unison in harmony. They sang separately. Um, and there are those that interpret it to be that the reason for that is because of the laws of modesty as well. Uh, Rabbi, this applies also to recorded music? Yes. Yeah. All right. You know, one of the commentaries that I read about it it's that the, um, the musical instruments drown the women's voices. That's possible. So that could be, you know, there is, there is a lot of commentaries. I've looked yep. into that. Well, thank you very much, Rabbi. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you all for joining oh, us. Something very quickly. You're welcome. Um, yes. I don't remember what it's called. It's organized through Chabad. I don't know if it's more than once a year, but Fred and I had actually signed up for Shabbat. I think it was called Shabbat in the Heights. Uh, We had paid our money and we were all set to go with a group from Chabad for four days in Brooklyn in May. And we had to get our, it was canceled. But that is, I would think eventually will happen again where there lectures, you, do, you go to the Rebbe's house, you go to the grave, you go to 770. It sounds like a fantastic uh, It definitely days. is. It definitely is. And as soon as uh, we're able to, I think we, I think we should do it. 100%. Something Magnificent, yeah. I would like to go. All righty. So we'll make a trip one of these days. We're, we're going to we'll announce sounds it. Good. Sounds good. Maybe the next time we do Shabbat in the Heights, we'll, we'll join it. Do it as a do it as a group. Rabbi yep. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you very much. Wonderful class. Bye. Take care. Very Thank you for joining us. Bye bye.